topic we're dealing with this morning is one which, for a number of reasons, I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this morning. Um, this is the what David has fallen into in this chapter is a sin which is so common today, not just out there in the world, but even right here in this room. If you're a guy, at some stage in your life, it's almost guaranteed you will struggle with sexual sin. And so, this morning I want to look at what happened with David. I want us to examine not only his failings, but what he should have done. And that will give us a list of a short list of things which we can do in our own lives to protect ourselves from sexual sin and from sin in general. Um, and at the end of this, we will close up uh, with the question, what if I have failed? But a few thousand years ago, a man, a boy was born. He was the eighth son of a reasonably well-to-do farmer. Of course, he was the grandson or the great-grandson, rather, of Ruth, who we read about in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. His name was David. David, as the eighth son, ended up being left with a lot of the responsibility that uh, his brothers would have been doing earlier on. So, primarily, he spent a lot of his time looking after the shepherd, the sheep that his father had, the flocks of his father. This afforded him a number of opportunities. He learned, for instance, how to defend the flock. He learned how to fight. He became pretty good with a sling. Uh, He became pretty good with the musical instrument. In fact, he became so good that he was actually called by the king to work in the king's palace to serve him by singing and playing music for him. Soon after, and while he was still in the king's service, uh, he he went to the front line of where the battle was and he saw Goliath. And he saw Goliath and he said, this isn't good enough. He went down and he fought against Goliath and beat him. This, of course, led to further success because David was then appointed to be one of the leaders and eventually the leader of Saul's army. Through numerous victories, David won the hearts of the people of Israel and he won the heart of the king's son. All of which sounds very good, except the king wasn't happy with it and tried to kill him and ultimately made him an exile. After Saul died, of course, as we know, David became king over Israel. Uh, so initially over Judah. When he was king over Judah, it's just worth noting, he had two wives at that stage. When he became king over Judah he, and then became king over all of Israel, he moved his, his palace and his uh, throne essentially to, from Hebron to Jerusalem. When he was in Jerusalem, he took more wives and more concubines. So if you look at things from that point of view, David was a very successful man. Now, not only was David physically successful, financially successful, successful on the battlefield, successful in politics, and apparently romantically successful, he was also, he also had a good walk with the Lord. Now, we can see this in a number of places. We did a study last year in our home group on David, and as we saw in a number of times, when David looked at the world around him, he looked at the world not through the eyes of the flesh, but through the eyes of faith. Faith illuminated his perception. It lit up the world around him and helped him to understand it. We see this, for instance, when he thinks about himself and creation. We read, for instance, in Psalm 139, You formed my inward parts. 
You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderfully your works. My soul knows it very well. He looked at the world around him and he saw himself through the eyes of faith. More importantly, he saw God and his glory through the eyes of faith. And we see this quite clearly when Goliath and him faced each other. Goliath said, come to me and I will feed your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David responded and said, you come to me with sword and spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whose, whom you have defiled. Defied, sorry. So he wasn't just coming at him saying, you know, you might be bigger than me and I'm going to beat you. He was coming at him saying, you've offended God and I'm here to be his executioner. He was looking at this not through, you know, it's just me versus you, buddy. He was looking at this as, I am God's instrument here doing his work. We also know that David was a man of God because he wrote Psalms. Did you know that David wrote 73 of our 150 Psalms we have in the Bible? 73. David uses, used his poet, poetic and musical skills to record and, and even to deal with the situations he was going through. For instance, when he was in trouble, he'd write a psalm. Psalm 52, when Doeg told Saul where David was. Psalm 54, when the men of Ziklag went to Saul and said, David is hiding in our town. Psalm 57, when David fled from Saul. All those psalms were written in response to David's difficult situation. And in those situations, he often cries out to the Lord, where are you? Why is this happening? David used the Psalms to pour out his heart before the Lord. He used his Psalms to examine himself. He used the Psalms to confess his sin. So as you read these Psalms, you'll find a whole plethora of different thoughts. And the reason for that is that these are the thoughts of a man who was using his poetry and the Psalms to work out the world around him before God. David was a man who walked with the Lord. However, in that alone, there is a huge warning. We can look at David, we can look at his spiritual strength. And I don't think any of us in here would claim to be spiritually as strong as David was. And yet David fell. So when we read the story about David here, we should be mindful of 1 Corinthians 10.13 which says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. This is a warning not just to us men, but to women, to all of us. We will all at some stage struggle and fail with this sort of temptation. Let's start by reading some of these verses in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired, 
about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, before we get into this, I want to spend just a couple of minutes very quickly dealing with the sin of adultery. No doubt, if you've been in or near a church for any amount of time, you'll know that the Bible generally speaks uh, poorly of adultery. We have commandments like the seventh commandment in Exodus 20. You shall not commit adultery. If you look further into the law, you find that in Exodus chapter 22, adultery was punishable by death. So it's fair to say that when God ranks sins, and you can rank them if you like, in the sense of the punishment that was dished out in the law, this ranks right up there. Jesus clarified sin, didn't he? Uh, the adultery, and he said, if you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, said Jesus, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'll just read a few verses there to you. We find that it says there, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Then Paul goes on to spell this out. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will enter the, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, for a Christian, sexual immorality and adultery in particular for a Christian there's a number of things that we can read from that. One of them is it demonstrates contempt for God's ordained family unit. When God made them, he made them male and female, and that was his design. Adultery demonstrates contempt for that. Adultery demonstrates unbelief. Paul says here in that passage we just read, and such were some of you. In other words, this is what you were like, but now you're a believer. Believers don't do that. So one of the things that we see is that adultery demonstrates unbelief. It doesn't necessarily disqualify us from the faith, but it certainly demonstrates unbelief. It demonstrates contempt for the sufferings of Christ on our behalf. It also suggests that we are perhaps still enslaved to sin. And I'll explain that a little more later on. And it also demonstrates contempt for the Spirit of God who's living inside of us. And we read in a few verses down in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And that's really important because a few verses earlier, Paul said, Do you not know your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and untie them, sorry, and, and unite them with a prostitute? Never. It is one of the worst things a believer could do is to commit adultery knowing that we are members of Christ. Not only this, I mean this is, this is you know, that's kind of a bleak picture. 
Not only this, but if we look at even David's life and we see the results of it, it's really quite fascinating. Let's look at what did this do for David. For a start, it caused the death of the child that Bathsheba had. It ultimately caused the murder of one of David's better warriors, Uriah. It caused the destruction of his family, Amnon, his son, seeing to some extent the example of his father raped his stepsister, or his half-sister. Consequently, Absalom murdered Amnon in revenge. Due to confusion over succession rights at the end of David's life, Adonijah set himself up as king. And David said, no, 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 Solomon will be king. That ultimately led to Solomon putting Adonijah to death. Not only that, but one of the direct judgments for what happened in First Samuel, uh, Second Samuel 11, was that his wives were violated in broad daylight. Whereas David did this thing in secret, God said this will happen publicly before Israel and before the sun. Think about what this did for Solomon. As a father to Solomon, David was the example Solomon looked up to. Solomon married hundreds of wives and more concubines. And ultimately, Solomon fell into the sin and the trap that Deuteronomy 17.17 17 warned against that he, his heart was led astray from the Lord after false gods. You know what happened as a result of that? All Israel followed him. Israel ultimately was divided because of its unbelief and sent him to exile. Now, if David had not sinned, would that have happened? Possibly. Did David directly contribute to all of that through his adultery? Absolutely. The results of adultery and sexual sin can be catastrophic, even if it's not well known. So as we examine this passage, we're going to look at the anatomy of David's sin. We're going to pull it apart. We're going to look at what he did what he didn't do, and what he could have done better. So, let's read the first couple of verses again. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened one afternoon when David arose from the, his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, if you read commentators looking at these couple of verses, you'll find that some of them will say that David was actually wrong to not go out and fight. And, you know, that's a bit harsh. I don't think it was wrong for David not to go out and fight, but there is a really good warning in this. David was certainly not a busy man at this particular stage. He was kind of idle. He could have been out fighting. He could have been dealing with the the, the, the trade in, in Jerusalem or in Israel. He could have been setting up international relationships, but at this very moment he was idle. He had just taken a rest on his couch and he walked out on the roof to look over the city. There was no urgency about this. He could take his time and indeed he did. Now, let me say right up front, there was nothing necessarily wrong with resting. In fact, if you're anything like me, you probably need to rest more. But there are plenty of things in this world that will keep you busy without you being productive. And many, many, many of these things not only will keep you busy in a very loose sense of the word, but will lead you to sin. 
if we read through Proverbs, we find that slothfulness and idleness can actually be a sin in and of itself. But it does indeed lead to further sin. We read, for instance, when, when Paul is talking to Timothy about widows and not to enrol younger widows, he says, apart from some other reasons, he said, besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from home to home, from house to house, and not only idle, but gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. First, Second Thessalonians 3.11 This is more of a church context and here he is saying, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. David allowed his idleness to lead him to sin. Busyness will keep you from sin to a certain extent. Not completely, but it certainly can help. And this is a real trap, particularly for those of us who are younger, who have more disposable money, who have more disposable time, particularly if you're single. There is no shortage of entertainments out there that will take up your time, but they do not help you serve the Lord. David should have asked himself, how is me being out here helping me serve the Lord better? Galatians 5.13 says, If you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Do you hear that? Freedom can be used as an opportunity for the flesh, but we should, in love, serve one another. So the first lesson we get from David's sin here is do not be idle, rather, through love, serve one another. We read there in verse 2, so that's the first one, don't be idle, serve one another in love. We read there in verse 2 that David, as he walked down the roof of the king's house, he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, note this, David hasn't sinned yet. He's seen, he's just seen. However, David has failed to do something at this point that he should have done. He's failed to protect himself. Men, as you know, are visual. This, how would staying on that roof, seeing that, help David? It doesn't. What he should have done is left, walked off the roof, gone back inside and forgotten about it. That's what he should have done. We read this in a number of places in the Bible, don't we? We read this, for instance, talking about wealth and desire of wealth and, and that sort of thing in First Timothy 6. It says, As for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Right? Rather than sitting about wondering, you know, for instance, in wealth, this is the point he's making here in this passage, is your point if you're struggling with wealth is not to sit there and wonder how much I should or shouldn't accumulate. Your task is to flee it and run the other direction and pursue something completely different. We find the same thing with regards to sexual immorality. Um, in 1 Corinthians 6.18, he says, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. The man who led me to the Lord before he became a itinerant preacher, was a farmer. One day he, re- he recorded a story once that I heard um, 
And he said one day he was out on his farm and he was walking uh, down this track and it had a bit of a stream going along next to it. And he heard this woman's voice call out to him and he looked over and behind the rushes on the other side of the stream there was a woman and she'd been waiting for him. And she started walking toward the stream and as she did so, she started taking off her clothes. There was no doubt what she had in her mind. There was no doubt for him what was going on here. As she continued, she walked into the stream. She was still calling out to him. What do you think he did? He turned and he ran as fast as he could. He did not stop and think, I hope I don't offend this woman. He did not stop and wonder how it would go down. He wanted to get out of that situation to run away from that sin. He fled. That is exactly the sort of thing David should have done. Should have got out of that situation to minimise the risk of temptation. I just want to take a, a little interlude here. Because when you're reading this, right, and you're looking at the situation here, you've got to ask the question, what is Bathsheba doing? We know that she's washing, right? But why is she washing in full view of the palace? Normally in those days, if you were going to wash, you'd probably go down to the river. However, the more wealthy women would normally have some sort of facilities for bathing at home. They have servants, they have people to look after that. This woman has not taken any precautions. And so there was nothing left to the imagination. She could have had screens. She could have worn some sort of covering that would, you know, while it might get in the way of washing, it might still have, you know, preserved her dignity. But there is none of that. If you're a married woman, you will know, like I said just a few minutes ago, men are visual. And I want you ladies, just for a moment, I'd like to ask you, I'd humbly like to ask you to consider how you can help your brothers in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3 is talking to women and it says there, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewellery or the clothing you wear. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, what was going on in the churches that Peter was writing to? As you know, in the first century church, most of the people in that church were poorer. However, you'll also remember that there were some wealthier people in the church. Remember, for instance, Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, the first Gentile convert who received the Holy Spirit, he was a really, really wealthy man. So there were some wealthy people there. And what Paul is talking, uh, what Peter, sorry, is talking to here is he's talking to the wealthier women in particular who would get jewellery and gold and things like that and they would drape it in their hair. And then they'd go along to the worship service looking wonderful. But there'd be these people standing behind them because they didn't have chairs in those. I don't know if you know that. It was a 14th century invention. They didn't have pews. But these people would stand behind them in the worship service and there'd be this distraction. Because while they were singing, there'd be this, there'd be like a year's wages sitting in some woman's hair. And that would distract these poor guys from their worship. Women, if you want to help your brothers in Christ, consider whether you are a distraction. And I'm going to take the liberty of giving you just two simple ideas. First of all, if you're coming to church and you're coming in the worship service, please reconsider having low cut tops. They look great on the catwalk. They'll probably look great on you, but they won't necessarily help your brothers in Christ. Secondly, 
The fuel wearing tight body hugging clothing that doesn't leave a whole bunch to the imagination, please reconsider that. Find something a little looser, something you can drape over it. This will help your brothers in Christ. Wives, if you have a husband, talk to him about it. Ask for his advice. Get his impression of what you, how well you dress and how, whether that's going to be a problem or not. If you are a father with daughters, you are responsible for how your daughters dress. You're responsible for helping them dress wisely. Here's a question if you're a father. Do you really want men leering at your daughter? I'm guessing the answer is probably not. Help them learn how to dress. In case if you're a woman and you're sitting there going, you know, bigoted, pillock, you know, I'm not going to listen to this. Here's a thought for you. Remember I said that men are visual? Now there's a gradient here, right? Some men have no problems. Other men don't need any help at all. They are quite capable of causing all the problems for themselves without your help. Now here's the thing. Men will take home images in their head of what they see through their day. And women, I'm sure you do not want to be that image. So please, if, you, if you've got the temperance and you've got some time, I recommend uh, there's a chapter in this book called Worldliness. Uh, it's all about how you dress. Um, it's written with great humility by a chap by the name of C.J. Mahaney. I recommend it to you. It's got some very good practical tips. Let's get back to the text. Right. Verse 3. So David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the wife, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Rather than flee, as David should have, he stayed and he entertained these thoughts. Your thought life is going to be a huge block, a huge part of whether you win or lose in this battle. We read in Colossians, don't we? If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When you, when we read 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and we're talking about, uh, we read a little passage there about spiritual warfare and it says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And note this, and take every what thought captive to obey Christ. Your thought life will determine whether you win or lose in this battle. It's worth noting here that David has inquired. He's gone and asked the question, who's this woman? He's crossed that line. He's thinking about what could happen. He's contemplating sin. And according to Jesus in Matthew 5.27, where it says, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. David, at this stage, is already in sin. So what do we do instead of letting our mind go free? 
Matthew 22, 37 says it very simply. He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind. So, third lesson from David. First one, don't be idle. Through love, serve one another. Second one, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, love, faith, love, steadfastness and gentleness. Third one, manage your thought life carefully. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. Fourth one, David sent... After he sent and inquired, what did he find out? He found out that she was somebody else's wife. Wife? Don't so you think that should have been a warning bell? Hey, uh, this is, she's actually married. And actually, so are you, by the way, David. But what happens in verse 4? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. You've got to ask the question, how on earth did he manage to get to that stage? Isn't this like, isn't it so clear that he shouldn't be doing this? He has just gone so... How on earth can you get that far off? Well, that's my next point. Actually, it's probably worth noting here that both Eliam and Uriah are listed among David's best men in 2 Samuel 23. These two men are mighty warriors in David's army. That should have helped, right? You should have known right there. Not good. But no. The reason David was able to go after this and the reason he was able to put all of that aside was because he was able to justify it. He was able to justify it. And we all do that, don't we? We find ourselves in something that we like, that we lust after, and then the next thing we start telling ourselves why we should have it. Why should I restrict myself? Justifying thoughts are a sign to us that our conscience is not clear. This is a warning that we are potentially in sin. Well, more likely we are in sin. A clear conscience has no reason to justify anything, does it? So when you're justifying things, it tells you that you're in sin. Paul said of the conscience, he said, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. He said that in Acts 24. He said to Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He said to Timothy, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a, what? Good conscience. By rejecting these, some have made shipwreck of their faith. We talked earlier this week in our home group about proving your faith. Your resistance to sin is one of those proofs or not of your faith. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews said, Let us draw near to God with full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. How is your conscience, believer? Fourth lesson from David then. Don't justify. Watch your conscience for signs of sin. So, we go through these again. Don't be idle. Through love, serve one another. Two, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness and gentleness. Three, manage your thought life carefully. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. Four, don't justify sin. Watch your conscience for signs of sin. 
Now, at this stage, of course, David has committed the sin. He's justified it. He's gone and done it. Bathsheba comes back. She says, you know what? I'm pregnant. Now, this has a huge raft of implications for David. David knows the law, for instance. Here's a few things that are going to happen. One, what has happened in secret is going to get out. You know what probably the worst thing about all this is for David? If this gets out, his reputation, gone. History. You only get one shot to make a name for yourself. You screw it up once, all over. It's really hard to come back from that, if not impossible. He could also be judged, of course, according to the law, which could be pretty bad. Even if he managed to escape it, Bathsheba's likely to be judged for it. So already he's got a problem. He doesn't want all this to come out. So he does the next mistake that he makes. The next mistake is he goes and he calls Uriah back from the front line. And he says, how's it going? How's the battle? Is it going well? It's all good, okay. How about you go down, you know, spend the night, wash your feet, you know, enjoy your home for a bit. Of course, the problem is that for David, I mean, what David's trying to do here is he's trying to cover this up. He's trying to get uh, Uriah to go down to his house and sleep with his wife so that the baby looks like it's his. And then all the problems go away. But fortunately or unfortunately for David, depending on how you look at it, Uriah was far too faithful. Rather than going down to, the, to his house, he said, all the servants of the Lord the army and my colleagues are out in a field in tents. How can I go and enjoy myself and, and, and sleep with my wife and all that sort of stuff? How can I do that when they're out there? I can't do that. So he didn't. He stayed in there. So David kind of had a bit of another shot at it. He tried to get him drunk this time, but again he stayed there. He stayed with the servants of the Lord, curled up on the couch, had a sleep. This was a problem for David because his plan was not, not working. You know, his attempts to cover this up were, were falling apart at the seams. So, well, next best thing then, okay, we've got to sort this out. So, if we can't get it to be look like it's Uriah's baby, then, you know, we have to make it look like it's my baby and we'll make that look good. So, what he does is he, he writes a letter, and I think this is one of the most despicable things David ever did. He writes a letter for a man's death warrant. He says to Joab, and Joab is intensely loyal to David. And he says to Joab, put Uriah in front of the fighting where it's fiercest and then draw back and leave him to it. Let's see if he lives. The idea being he's not supposed to, he's supposed to die. Joab being a good man does that. But here's the thing that I think is so despicable about this is David writes that letter and gives it to the very man he's talking about. So Uriah is carrying back to Joab his own letter of condemnation and death, his letter of execution. Imagine Joab receiving that letter. Potentially Uriah is still there with him in front of him and he's reading it and he's going, uh-huh, okay, yep, cool, thank you Uriah. That's a bit of a mind job. So David went along and he covered this up. Ultimately Uriah was killed and in covering up his sin he caused, he, he, his sin just got worse, didn't it? Not was It wasn't just that he covered it successfully, he covered it with murder. And this is the thing. Just a couple of really interesting things about this, right? The fact that he knew he had to cover this up is an, an acknowledgement of guilt. It's not an open acknowledgement because remember, he's justified this to himself. He's okay with it all. 
but he doesn't want the rest of the world to think that it's not okay. So the best way to manage that is to cover it up. So to do that, he has to say, that, you know, it actually needs to be covered up. When you start covering your sin, this is a really strong indicator that you are a slave to it. You are making, you are doing things, you are acting only because of sin you've already committed. You are, it is the rod, you are doing its will. Covering up sin demonstrates that you are a slave to that sin. It is the desperation to appease a wounded conscience that drives you to cover up your sin. So, the fifth lesson from David's fall is do not cover up your sin, rather confess. First up, do not be idle, through love serve one another. Flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness and gentleness. Three, manage your thought life carefully, love the Lord your God with all your mind. Four, don't justify sin, watch your conscience for signs of sin. Five, don't cover your sin, confess it. Now that's not quite the end of the story. Of course, the child is born a few months later. It looks like it's David's David's child. About a year after all of this happens, David, uh, sorry, the Lord, nobody knows about this except a small number of people inside the palace, but the Lord tells Nathan about it and Nathan goes to David and he confronts him. He's got three messages for David. He's got a message of conviction to tell him he's a sinner. He's got a message of judgment and he's got a message of forgiveness. So we read the story. We're not going to read the story because we're running short on time. But we read the story and in the story of the, the man who's who you know didn't want to take the poor you know who took the poor man's lamb instead of using one of his own. The, the David is the rich man, Uriah is the poor man, and Bathsheba is the lamb. And we can see this makes sense when you think that David had plenty of women, but he wanted to take Uriah's one woman. Uriah had only one, and David took it. David's anger was kindled against the man in the story, wasn't it? And David said, "This man deserves to die." And, and then what did Nathan say? He said, you are the man. And then he pronounced judgment on him. This was God's judgment. And he gave him a number of them. He said, the sword will not depart from your house. As we already saw, this was fulfilled in Amnon, Absalom, Solomon and Adonijah. He said, evil will be raised up, raised up from inside your house and they will take wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbour and he will lie with them before broad daylight. You did this secretly. I'm going to do this before all Israel and before the sun. And he said, because you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that has been born to you shall die. And that is exactly what happened. The consequences of sexual sin are catastrophic. Make no mistake about it. Even if you do not see it, there is consequences. David's sin affected not only himself, but his children, their families, and eventually all of Israel. Not only this, but when... David came to repentance he wrote Psalm 51 and in Psalm 51.12 it reads there Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. One of the very natural consequences of David's sin was that he lost his joy in the Lord. Another indicator that there is a problem is a lack of joy in Christ. There are always natural consequences with sin. Always. 
When, Nathan, when David heard Nathan's words, he said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Just, just take note of that for a moment because here was a man who for around a year had covered this up. He had probably largely forgotten about it because it was a year ago, no one knew, it was all good. And when he was confronted with it, he immediately humbled himself. It takes humility to confess our sins. David did that, not just when he was on his own with the Lord, but he acknowledged it straight away to Nathan. He humbled himself, he saw his sin, he humbled himself, he confessed and he repented. And Nathan gave him a message of forgiveness. Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sins. You shall not die. After this had all taken place, David wrote two Psalms. He wrote Psalm 51, which I'll read a little bit of now. Uh, And he wrote Psalm 32 a little bit after that. Psalm 51, David recognised his sin there and he said in verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Psalm 51 was written by a man who was broken. The first verse tells us that, but there are other verses here as well. The first first verse says, Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. You know what David was looking at here? He wasn't looking just at his sin. He was looking at the person of God. He was recognising the mercy and the love of God and he was appealing to God for cleansing on the basis of his character. It's the same basis upon which we too can appeal to God. Psalm 32, after David wrote Psalm 51, he wrote Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is a a bit of a didactic psalm. That means it's sort of written for instruction. And there's a few verses there which are are really worth thinking about. First up, it says in verses 1 and 2, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. It doesn't mean that they have not committed iniquity. The Lord doesn't count it to them. Blessed is that man. There's also another thing in that particular verse, in whose spirit there is no deceit. The humility with which we need to confess our sins requires not that we just give it passing mention. It requires that we open our hearts entirely to the Lord, take all of the cobwebs out, all the shadows, open it all up so that there is nothing left there that we're hiding so that there is no deceit in our hearts. Blessed is that man, says David in Psalm 32. Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, he recounts how he was going through this this time. He said, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Why would he be groaning all day long? He carries on and says, For your, for day and night, your hand, God, was upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And that's the way it works. We fall into sin. If we get conviction, the Lord will slowly put his hand on us, won't he? And we will feel that heat. We will feel that guilt. 
and it becomes a crushing weight over time. This crushing weight, David said, caused him to acknowledge his sin. His next verse is, because of all of this, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And the next piece is interesting. Almost as if he's an unbelief. He's saying, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Confession is the key to forgiveness. 1 John 1, nine says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It can't be just a passing comment. We need to be broken about our sin, as David was. How could God forgive the iniquity of David's sin? How is this even possible? Well, it says in Romans chapter 3 that God passed over these sins. He passed over the sins previously committed. Where did he put them? On Christ. The takeaway for you and I is that our sins have been put on Christ as well. Men, if you're guilty of sexual immorality, be it thoughts, be it pornography, be it masturbation, be it flirtation with someone other than your spouse, be it the actual act of adultery, know that the sin that you committed was punished on the cross, in Christ. And he alone is your hope for salvation. Will you trust him? And will you repent? Women, if you're the victim of a husband who has been unfaithful or and you're sitting there and you are going, you know what, I just would love to see justice done. Know this. Jesus is justice. God has punished those sins in Christ. Will you trust him? We read in Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's pray. Almighty God, the cross is the most applicable thing, the biggest need that each of us has today because in the cross every one of our sins were punished forever. All wrath that was due to us was placed on Christ and we are now free. Lord, what gift could we bring that would compensate for this? But Lord, we pray, I pray that you would help us to bring our lives as an offering to bring you glory and honour and to proclaim the greatness of what you have done to the people we are among. Lord, I pray that we would not be become part of the culture that we're ensconced in, Lord, but that we would be a different culture from the culture that we are part of. Cause us, Lord, we pray, to hate our sin and to love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our mind. Help us remember these practical points this morning. Help us to love you more than anything else. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.